Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, hello and welcome to our January 19th Week to Week. This, by the way, completes our 11th year as the Commonwealth Club's political roundtable. So we're very pleased with that. Yeah. I'm John Zipperer, your host for Week to Week. I'm also a former Goldman Sachs and Citigroup employee, a graduate of Baruch College, and the former <laughs> head of Friends of Pets United. So, very glad you could be here with us. Uh, it's great to see you. Obviously, today we're going to be talking about some stuff that's happening in the political world today, as well as taking a bit of a look at things we can expect in the rest of 2023. So let's meet our panelists today, starting on the far end of the stage with Tim Anaya. He's the Communications Director for the Pacific Research Institute. He's also a former Assembly GOP and California Legislature staffer. So welcome back, Tim. Thank you. Melissa Kane is the host of the new Get Out the Bet podcast and is also a political analyst and journalist. Hello again, Melissa. And next to me is Bob Butler, a KCBS radio reporter. He's also the broadcast vice president for SAG-AFTRA. Welcome. So our first topic, you might have even heard about this a little bit. Um, There's been a lot of power changing hands in Washington, D.C. over the past couple months. Uh, Let's focus on the U.S. House of Representatives, which was won by the Republicans in the fall election. The GOP holds the chamber with a slim margin of four votes. And that narrow majority came into play in glorious technicolor during the recent selection of the Speaker at the House, uh, which, of course, was finally won by California Representative Kevin McCarthy. Melissa, I want to start with you. Much was made about the Wagnerian opera of the selection (laughs) process that we all witnessed. But um, what about the substance? I mean, like, what was what was happening? What was the meaning of these, you know, very tense battles we were seeing within the Republican Party? Uh, oh boy, <laughs> kill the web. Uh, so uh, here's the thing: the the things that the Republicans, the holdout Republicans, were fighting about are actually, if you look at the list of things, the the, the items that they wanted, um, some of them folks on the left would object to. Some of them, uh, you know, you can debate. But there were certain things that they were trying to do to kind of unclench the party fist in the house and you have even people like aoc coming out saying you know what these aren't all terrible like this is actually a good thing that we're going to be able to vote on more things we're going to be able to debate more things because the way it kind of works now is whoever's in power um goes into a room and comes up with a bill and it's like seventy-five thousand pages long and it's got everything in the world in it and then they just immediately bring it out to the floor vote on it and that's it um and so in a way, I mean, there are a couple of some of the things that they were trying to do that I think we can all hold hands and agree are probably okay. It would probably be okay to vote on things more and to debate more and to have um, bills that aren't, you know, huge books that are only, you know, to sort of get put on the floor and you vote right away. There's a 72-hour rule as part of part of the thing. So that's part of it. There's also, you know, they want to go after Hunter Biden and they're, they're the other kind of more partisan things in there. But but there are certain parts of this that actually, you know, it's hard to, um, to, to make the case against. They're really, if you are, like me, not a fan of political parties, I was like, okay, great. Let's, not, not like the drama of it, but, but I wasn't mad at some of the things that they were asking for, even though I'm not a Republican. Interesting. Tim, what were your thoughts watching this? Well, I think one of the interesting things is we kind of have, we're used to 
the speaker being this kind of all-powerful person in Washington. And, you know, historically, the speaker was very powerful. They controlled all the money that was doled out to candidates, and they certainly controlled all the committee assignments and perks and what kind of office you got and what kind of great congressional delegation trips that you got to go on. And I think this whole debate really shows us that that's really a relic of the past. You know, now that kind of internet grassroots fundraising is such a big thing right now, you know, someone like a Matt Gates or an AOC, they're not dependent on the party leadership anymore. So when they come to them and say, you better vote for this or else, or you better vote for me or else, they can tell them to pound sand because they've got their own $20 million in the bank and they have a whole network of people across the country who are following what they're doing and are sending in their $5 and, and $10. So I think that kind of drama really was you know, on full display for us to see really for the first time of how different things are in Washington today. Like literally the, the congressman get like his face. You know, the, the, the security guy came and kind of grabbed him by the oh, face. Yes. That was amazing C-SPAN content, yeah. uh, <laughs> which people should watch more of, I think. Um, but it was, it was, I remember watching it and being like, what is happening right now? People are walking up the aisle and, get, and like yelling at each other. It was it was um, int- my British friends were like, thanks, America, because yeah. <laughs> we felt like we were a little sheepish after the whole our whole prime minister thing there for a minute. But you have successfully taken the, <laughs> the attention away from us <laughs> and put it on your system. Right. Yeah. C-SPAN. Yeah. That may be one of the next bills to ban C-SPAN from the Congress. Yeah. <laughs> Should be more C-SPAN. But, Cameras but they, they really showed their value. I think. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Bob, what, what were your thoughts when you were watching this unfold? I, I was sitting there thinking, you know, the country is in a position where you want legislators who are going to legislate for the people. And I just don't feel comfortable that the Republican Party really cares about legislating for the people. I mean, who in their right mind would propose ban- getting rid of Social Security or changing it to the point where anybody who's getting it would, be, would lose out. I mean, that, and that to me is a loser um, for their constituents. Um, I can't wait for the debate on getting rid of the IRS in favor of a 30% sales tax. Well, you know, well, here's the thing, though. When you've got a, uh, a split between the House and the Senate, like we do now, where you have the House controlled by one party and the Senate controlled by the other, you get a lot of signaling legislation. Where, and the Democrats do this, too, when Republicans are in charge of the Senate. I, I, you constantly will get emails saying, we passed a bill giving a free puppy to every American, and it died in, in the, the Senate. Senate right? um, and you go, you never knew. You never thought that was going to actually take place. Yeah, you just want to be able to that, send yeah. that email yeah. asking me for money, telling me you did the thing. And so now that it's flipped, and now that you know the, the Democrats are in charge of the Senate and Republicans in the House, there's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be a lot of bills that are passed in the House that are, you know, you might think are totally bananas, but it's just so they can go back and tell their constituents, oh, I voted for that bill, even though they know it would never actually happen, right? It's the dog and the car, right? You know what I mean? So, um, so we'll see, you know, we'll probably see a lot of that. And so there's a lot of people making representations, but it's really a lot of just, um, you know, fundraising and, um, and no one really thinks necessarily they're going to be signed into law. And I can speak to that, too. You know, having worked in the California legislature for nearly 20 years, you know, there are bills that you have in your package every year that are district bills to solve problems that your constituents have come forward with. 
and then there are bills we would call them messaging bills you know where there's an issue like tax reform or like social security reform where you know you're not going to pass it you may not even bring it up for a vote in some cases but you want to start a conversation sometimes you know a lot of, of legislation it doesn't pass in the first year or even in the first session sometimes it takes 5 or 10 years to get the ball moving and build a coalition around that issue so you know some of these ideas that sound like there's no way any of those bills are ever going to be passed by both houses but those people pushing them they want to start a conversation on those issues and they want to play the blame game we had this great idea and the democrats killed it yep. the democrats hate america they killed this they killed the bill to abolish the irs and raise and get rid of your social security you know and raise your sales tax 30%. I mean, but it's it's bonkers, but that's the performative performances we're going to see in the next couple of years. Yeah, there's there's been a, a lot of talk and kind of bewilderment about okay, McCarthy had to make a lot of concessions and everyone has to make a concession, concessions when they're doing that negotiation to be speaker, more so when you've got a really narrow majority. Pelosi did it, uh, Boehner did it. Um Tim, you worked with McCarthy when you were in the state legislature. Can you tell us what you think of him at how does he operate and what can we expect him to operate in what's probably going to be a very contentious year on, on many fronts? Right. Well, I would say one thing on that kind of issue of the, the trade-offs and, and, and how to do it. We certainly all saw, thanks to C-SPAN, some of the wild things that people were talking about and were saying during that week. Well, if you think that's wild, go behind closed doors <laughs> when they're off the record and hear the things that they're talking about and asking for. And you as the leader, and again, both, you know, Nancy Pelosi had to do this too. Any party leader has to do this. You have to, with a straight face, take these things seriously and cut a deal and get enough people in moving forward. It's been said that if you're a party leader, more so if you're minority leader, but I think it applies if you're the speaker um, it's like trying to herd feral cats. And we saw that all on display here. Now, Kevin, as kind of what he'll be like, I worked for him for three years when he was Republican leader in Sacramento. I would say, I think we could expect two things. One, he's a very political person. And by that, I don't mean he's going to be, you know, this, that, or the other in his press conferences, lobbying charges. Yes, there'll be those those times. But in terms of he's a political animal, he knows every district, who the congressman is, who are the key players in their district, who are the up and coming people to recruit. Um, he, you know, last year for the House, he raised over $500 million to elect Republican candidates to the House. So this is someone who literally, even though we have this kind of new era of grassroots fundraising, a lot of people up there owe Kevin their job. So I think he'll be, for his longevity, that will help him, you know, that he'll be attuned to how do we keep the seats we have and how do we move forward. Now, the knock you'll get on Kevin is, well, he's not a policy guy. He's not really interested in policy. And that might have been true earlier in his career. The times I have seen him more lately, he is really deep on policy. And Certainly, if you see him in an interview now, all he's talking about, you know, really are policy issues. But I think that's a thing of leadership. You know, when you look at issues in Washington, 
the president's agenda is always the Biden agenda. But the congressional agenda, well, it's really not the McCarthy agenda or the Hakeem Jeffries agenda. It's really the party's agenda. And if you're a good leader, yes, you're out in front, but you empower your membership to be the ones who are carrying those bills and being the front people for their top priorities. So though Kevin may not be the one saying, this is my plan and here are all the things I want to do, it's actually smart on his part to be one, yes, I'm there and yes, I'm supporting my team, but you're really putting the key members up front, you know, having that front and center moment uh, in the spotlight. So I think you'll see a lot of that. Well, you know, member management, as we would call it, is really the key function of a speaker aside from their you know, kind of policy duties. And I think he'll do quite well at that, despite this kind of wild environment he finds himself in. One of the things that Nancy Pelosi was very good at was take, was giving cover for her members who, mm-hmm. you know, uh, protecting moderate members who might have the more progressive voters, members mad at them on abortion or gun control or something like that because they're from more purple districts. Um, how do you think McCarthy will will do on that? Will he? He will shield? get that. Yeah, he'll that will be his inclination. But that's one of the consequences of the rules changes. You know that the the rebels wanted to see because when you have more votes on amendments on the floor and more debate, one of the consequences of that, if you're a party leader, is members in tough races are going to have to take votes they don't want to take. So you're going to see that. The, those in competitive districts or who could be at risk of losing their seats in the next election, they're going to have to take those votes. Melissa, you interviewed John Boehner here for the club, and uh, he was a speaker who famously got frustrated dealing with his uh, hard right, uh, the, I guess the Tea Which Party. Which is now the, the mainstream. Right, you know, well, <laughs> yeah, right. The, just like Reaganites used to be considered very, you know, Democrats thought they were extremists, and then Reaganites were the ones who were, like, driven out of the party by the Trumpists. But... Revolutions always eat their own. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, tell us kind of what he what he went through and, and his approach and why he left. Well, I can tell you, John Boehner, no one's, like, happier right now than John Boehner. He's, he's on the golf course <laughs> laughing. Uh, he, so he wrote this book called On the House. It was a great book. Um, and he was such a great interview because, because he was no longer speaker. You could talk about it. And he called them the hell no caucus. And he said the problem with them is that they know, like, the crazier they are, the more – it's sort of like in sports how everyone wants, like, the sports center clip. You know, they would say you do you want like the big hits. You're not doing the fundamentals. Sometimes your your people. I don't know. I'm clearly don't know what I'm talking about. But you know what I mean. Like <laughs> people who like sports will tell you that. Um, but it's like that where people um, they just want like that highlight clip, uh, and so they they care more about that than they do sort of the mundanities of of. of performing, you know, government work. Um, and so he said his thing was, because uh, again, it's called On the House, but it's, a, it's also about his childhood when he grew up, his, his dad owned a bar. And so he grew up in the bar, but he basically said, look, I grew up in a bar. I'm used to dealing with crazy people. <laughs> He's like, you deal with it. And he literally said crazy. He's like, I, you know, crazy people come in. It's fine. Um, he's like, you know, you do your best. And he had raised money for them. Because I asked him, I was like, "You, but you raise money for them, and then they show up, and then they they say all these things about you." And he's like, "Yeah." <laughs> so it doesn't mean necessarily that they're gonna, um, you know, dance with the one that brought them. 
um, that uh, that might not, you know, if you're angling for something else, right? If re-election isn't your goal, if um, being a pundit is your goal or some other kind of thing is your goal, that's not necessarily going to be sort of a tie that's going to hold you to that. But um, but he, you know, he, he said that it was very difficult and that um, you really couldn't compete with these other um, pressures or other pulls that were pulling your party members into into a different place. Um, you know, you just kind of do your best and find, you know, find that sort of Venn diagram. I think McCarthy might do something like let his caucus do whatever crazy stuff they want to do so they can go back and say they did it. But then when it comes to, you know, in exchange, when it comes to you know, the important stuff, we expect you to line up. And I don't know how that's going to go, but that might be the plan might be. Right. The plan might be um, let's, you know, we'll let them do their thing. And then, you know, you know, in exchange, they will, you know, do, you know, raise the debt ceiling or whatever it is that we need them to do when we need them to do it. Fingers crossed. There's a, a quote that's attributed to Sam Rayburn. Son, if you can't take their money, drink their whiskey and then vote against them, you don't deserve to be here. Yeah, that's actually the PG version. There's another <laughs> version of that quote that would, I'd have to go to HR. But um, there was some talk during this whole whole kind of as the country was watching this happen as to whether he should basically make these concessions, get elected speaker, and then basically ignore the crazy or uh, uh, claims or demands from uh, some of the folks on, in his caucus. I think that's what's going to happen. I mean, he's made a lot of concessions. I mean, allowing one member to get up and call for his head. I mean... That's fine, but you have to have a lot. You have to have enough people vote for it. So I don't know that that's actually going to happen. But I think he needed to be. He wanted to be speaker. He said, "I'll do anything to be speaker." And then once I get there, all bets are off. I'll do what I want to do. And I think that's what's going to happen. And I would say on the you know kind of the one member issue, mm -hmm. if you know we don't know how things are going to take us, but if you know we get to that point, you still need two hundred eighteen votes on the floor to do it. And so. Would, if you're Hakeem Jeffries, is it in, yes, it's in your interest to have kind of disarray, but it, is it in your interest to topple him as speaker and have someone else? You can work with Kevin. Right. Can you work with person Jim, Jim X, Y, or yeah. Z? Yeah. Jim Jordan, yeah. So only, uh, do I have this right? Only Republican members could, could move to vacate. Or, no, no. Well, anybody, anyone? Anybody. Democrats they said anybody can. Okay. I'm actually surprised during this that. whole thing that Jeffrey didn't go to him and say, look, you know, let's let's reach a power sharing agreement. You're the speaker, but I've got six people that will vote for you to get to get this taken care of. I'm surprised it didn't happen. At least what they were saying through the news was that the Democrats had all agreed not to do that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there was the there was another line of thinking that was like, well, but then is, there's is always going to be the result or the resolution of. There's this? always the back room, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of saner minds in Congress. Let's dive into the saga, excuse me, the saga of George Santos, if that's his real name. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll stick with you, Bob. I mean, the MSNBC talking heads and the political tweeters are, of course, very engaged in the, in the Santos story. Um, is this likely to be anything that gets down beyond kind of the entertainment level of, of the political world? Or, um, are, or does it become one of those define, you know, millstones around the neck of the, the Republicans nationally kind of have to always hang their heads up. Well, because of I don't think the Republican Party cares that he lied. I mean, because I think that's kind of derogatory for the party nowadays. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you win. So I don't think George Santos has anything to worry about. Or what is this? 
Uh, his name, uh, Devolder, uh, George, uh, Anthony. And what's his drag name? Uh, somebody must. Somebody <laughs> must. Urology or yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he has anything to worry about until re-election. I think come re-election, I think even a lot of the people who voted for him are now are saying, if I'd have known all this, I'd never would have voted for the guy. So I think he may have a problem then. But the party itself, I don't think the party really cares because you know he's another vote, especially with a two eighteen yep. majority. Well, but I'm, I'm wondering. Whether or not, I mean, we've got all these people that ask for pardons and stuff. You know, you just wonder if the D, if the DOJ is going to one day come up and say, issue some indictments to these people that you know basically tried to help uh, Trump overturn the election. I don't know, but if the, if that happens and if they're from Democratic states, that could flip very quickly the House. Uh, well, so. Every day is just like you know, pick, you pick up the phone. You look at the news and you're like, oh, there's an, oh, kill the dog. Well, of course, <laughs> uh, one of the, one of these days it's going to be like Vladimir Putin. You know, like, <laughs> I want to know where was his opponent? Because look, there's a lot of reasons why I don't run for office, but one of them is I'm just convinced that my opponent would be out there talking to my first grade teacher about how I used to eat paste, you know, and I don't need the world to know that. You too. You know, <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of us believe that there is some, you know, usually the opponent, but somebody's doing some betting out there. Um, and so it's so, that's part of why this is so baffling. It's just like, I, that's who I want to talk to. No more from George Santos. Well, his opponent, apparently a lot of criticism has been aimed at the head of the Democratic Party in, in New York State because they had this information. It was out, or they had some of the information out. And frankly, if you can't take a small kernel of information of bad news for your opponent and make it into a big thing, you don't deserve to be in politics. <laughs> not, not in the big leagues, okay? <laughs> and, and I mean, it's, it failed to do that, clearly. I mean, it was... And, but there's, and there's a few ways to, to kind of deal with this. I know people are mad that he got seated, but the truth is there's, there's sort of two things. One is like, ex, is like exclusion from the House and the other is expulsion, right? So to exclude someone and say you can't even take your seat, you have to, be, uh, you have to sort of fail the three tests, the you know, citizen for seven years and a resident of your state and you know, be a certain age. And so if you were those things, they kind of have to seat you. There's really no other way to prevent someone. But once you're in to kick you out, then that's a two-thirds vote. And that's something that they can do. And I think they're doing committee, they're investigating now. Um, but just because people, I think, think that there's, you know, the cops should come. But the truth is, there's really, there's very little that you can do once somebody's already in, if they've met those requirements and they've been elected. The place to look is if you, when you go to um, sign your, you know, your statement, your candidate statement, whether or not he attested to certain things under penalty of perjury that weren't true. And if that's the case, then the the DA um, uh, or Secretary of State in New York, I know in California that would be, I think, a Secretary of State, but the, um, the Attorney General would, would could come after you. So those are the only real avenues that you have, aside from, as you point out, re-election, which, you know, two years uh, is, it can seem like a long time, but, uh, but it's not that long when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to being in Washington. And as soon as the dust settles, you're already running for re-election. So hopefully this... Um, short national nightmare will be <laughs> will be over soon. You mentioned an investigation. Didn't they go to the ethics committee, the one that Kevin's going to disband? Um, oh, is he disbanding the ethics committee? I think he's putting together something to. Yeah, it's not going to be very ethically 
sound. Maybe, maybe <laughs> Matt Gates will share it. Yeah. Um, Tim, Democrats probably don't want him out of office for the next two That's years. That's right. You want him front and center every yeah. day. And you want the albatross for the next election. You know, everybody who took money from him or gave him money or sat next to him on the floor or voted with him or seen anywhere with him. That's gold, really. Um, but I think you're right. You know, this is a question that's going to be solved. Um, you know, obviously he has no shame. He's not going to step down. Um, that's, uh, you know, Congress doesn't exactly have a great track record over the years, including recent times of investigating their own. So I wouldn't put much faith in that. And, you know, it's going to be whether on his campaign reports that he um, said something fraudulent or had questions about what his spending was or, you know, that's the way to go. But, you know, the whole thing for me, what I think we may have found is, I don't know about you all, but I saw last year one of the shows I binged on Netflix was Inventing Anna. And Inventing Anna is a whole story like this, but in the art world. We may have found the second season of Inventing Anna. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to move on to our next topic. And uh, all you Democrats who have been laughing at the Republicans, so there are these Biden files that apparently are everywhere. I mean, we've taped a secret document to the bottom of every chair here in the audience. You get Take a it home with yeah. you. Yes, you've got one. You've got top secret. Uh, the special prosecutor will call you presently. Um, but, you know, it, for days, it, it seemed like every day there was another, oh, they found some more secret documents in his home, in his garage, and whatever. Um, Republicans, of course, were quick to point out Democrats' outrage over former President Donald Trump's uh, taking of uh, classified documents and charge hypocrisy. Um, first, are there any significant differences between the situations of Biden and Trump and their respective hordes of secret documents? Any differences? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it shows that people can be careless. Um, what I wonder is how many other people, um, after leaving you know, leaving office or whatever, uh, found they had documents, called the archives and turned them back in, um, as opposed to not turning them back in and fighting and saying that they're theirs. In Biden's case, they're saying it, it was probably his staff that mixed the documents up and, and took them. And then when they, the lawyers found them, they called the archives, turned them back in. That's a good thing. You, you found out that you, that you walked out of the grocery store with an extra, you know, bottle of hand, hand wash and you go back in and you pay for it. That's, that's what happens. It's different than, you know, stealing the whole, you know, getting the trash bag and throwing stuff in and walking out okay. and daring somebody to stop you. But is it a problem? Yeah, it's a problem. You know, because it, nobody should be having documents that they shouldn't have, especially top, I don't know if they're top secret, whatever they are. But I found it interesting that I was reading this yesterday that the Biden White House was told by the DOJ not to talk about it. Don't look for the documents. Don't look for any more documents. Really? Let us handle it. Yeah. yeah. But this happened early on, uh, right after the election, when they found, they found the documents, I think, on November 8th, and they called the DOJ, they called the archives, the DOJ said, keep this quiet. Let's not talk about it. So, so people are accru- accusing the administration of a cover-up when they were basically being told, they were doing what they were told by DOJ. So that's, that's what I'm seeing, hearing. It's still a problem. I mean, there's this, you know, if you're explaining, you're losing in politics. And there's just a lot of explaining going on right now from the White House when it comes to these documents. And I think most people agree that, like, yeah, somebody should take a look here. And if something was done wrong, 
we should fix it. I think it's so early. We don't really know what those documents were. We don't know how many different places there were. And, and people are, it, it just seems, his administration has seemed pretty tight-lipped on certain issues. And I think this is just the, the frustration with the communication around the, around the documents. It's, if this was the only subject that, upon which that seemed like a fortress, um, then I think people might not be as up in arms. But it, there just seems to be a lot of like waving away of like, there's no border problem. There's no Hunter Biden laptop problem. There's no document problem. And people are, I think, starting to get increasingly um, concerned that this administration isn't responding to questions about certain things. Um, and so I think that it just feeds into, you know, I think at the very least, you had to wake up and read that and go, Ugh, not yeah. helping. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's exactly how I thought of it. Because when I, you know, thought about this story, um, I thought of it from having been that press staffer back in the day <laughs> who had to clean up messes sometimes for politicians. And you have, you know, the very definitive statements on TV from the president and the surrogates of that is so reckless. I can't imagine anybody would do that. Now it's your job to walk that back. And that's very hard to do. And yes, when you're explaining, you're losing. But boy, I feel for them because they are in for, they've been in a rough patch. And then the, the bit about the garage and all of that, that didn't help things either, to say the least. So, you know, it, it's the, there's the legal thing. And I think they've done that pretty well, right? The attorney general did the special counsel. That's good. You know, theoretically, that kind of takes it out of politics of nothing is really ever out of politics. But that's good. You want it to be at a 30,000 foot view at the end of the day. We all want to say everybody who's been accused of these things, it's been a similar process. So if they can say that, they're going to be good on the legal front. But on the politics front, oh, what a what a mess. And the more you're talking, really, the more you're digging. Well, and I don't know the right, you know, and, and the point about having them keep quiet, that is the correct thing to do. You know, if Melissa was my lawyer, she would tell me, don't say anything until the trial is over or until, you know, there's a resolution of whether they're talking, because when, whatever you say, that's part of the record. So you, that's easier said than done when you're a president or a politician, because that's your first instinct. I got to explain and I've, I've got to get out of this. So it's a real conundrum on the political and PR side of things. And they've got to be kicking themselves because they actually have been kind of riding a bit of a wave. Yes. You know, the better than expected November election results, some improving polling numbers, um, some, you know, signs of hope on the economy and inflation. And then you get this story after story that ended up kind of making Biden's team kind of look less like the staff of the West Wing and more like that of Veep. Um, <laughs> well, what's it? What's, what's the car he's got? A Corvette? Yeah. By the way, if you look under your table, your seat, there may be a Corvette key. <laughs> yes. I remember, like, so they keep asking to your point about the beep. They're like, so you know, asking him questions. So what about the files? And he's like, yeah, they were in a garage locked with my Corvette. And they go, they go. So the files were locked in the garage. And he's like, yes, with my Corvette. He kept saying yeah, it. It was garage. just like, oh, Selena, please, <laughs> like, stop <laughs> and, talking about your Corvette. And I would be the staffer in the back cringing, saying, no, please stop. Just say no more. Well, it's kind of like, you know, the last administration when the staff had to always clean up stuff that the president was saying. Uh, this is a little bit different um, than that. But it is, like I said, it's going to be a problem. The only savings grace, I think, when it comes to 
the next election, we're in the beginning of 2023. It's not until the end of 2024. Will people forget? Well, I know some people won't want you to forget, and they're very good at keeping these kinds of things alive, especially, you know, Tuckums. But uh, we'll see what happens. Well, a couple of months have gone by since the November election. We've seen, I think, some of the dust settle. We've seen more dust kicked up. But uh, you already know the headline results. The GOP took the House. The Democrats slightly expanded the Senate uh, majority, or Senate control, really. They didn't have a majority before. And Gavin Newsom, of course, cruised to victory with another 200% of the vote or whatever he got. <laughs> Tim, to you, what were the most surprising things that happened in this election? Well, I mean, I don't know that there was, I think everybody was kind of surprised by the margin in the House. Um, but, you know, to me, kind of looking at it, it's kind of a simple takeaway from that, right? And that's, if you nominate unelectable candidates, they will probably lose. <laughs> and what do you know? Look what happened. Most did. It, yeah. Most did. But yeah. some didn't. Yeah. And so that's why it's so important and you saw with the Republican success in like New York or Florida or even I would argue California was actually kind of a success story for Republicans in the House. If you nominate candidates that kind of reflect the district, both their priorities and kind of their profile, that they're, you know, that person is one of us. Those people, when I mean people like um, Congresswoman Young Kim from Orange County, um, here in the Central Valley, Congressman David Valadeo, who even voted for impeachment and was challenged by a Trump-backed challenger in the primary. He not only won the primary narrowly, but he won he won re-election by a pretty healthy margin. So I think that's the key takeaway for 2024 when you're looking at, you know, all the calculus that's going into, you know, Republicans theoretically will have a good opportunity, but the Senate map, there's a lot more Democrats seats than Republican seats up. But un unless you nominate people who reflect the state and are electable and don't have, but their last names aren't Santos um, or DeVolder. Uh, I'm like, you don't know his last uh, name. We don't know his last name. <laughs> his last name is X. Um, you're likely to repeat the same fate. And, they said, and, and that goes both, both sides of the aisle. But yeah. Melissa, who? Well, I'm from Georgia, so this was crazy to watch. I grew up, Herschel Walker was just, you know, so, you know, just everything. You know, it was like the one thing everyone could agree on is the awesomeness of Herschel Walker. So watching him. <laughs> as a running back. Um, as, yes, at, in football. Um, but, uh, but so, you know, but growing up and like, you know, there's, you know, there's Jesus and Elvis and Herschel Walker, you know, and then to see him, um, in this race and saying these things and just, you know, every, you know, it's another one of these, like every day, it's just like, there's another kid and another, what, um, was so strange. Um, and I think, you know, it, yes, you do want, and it, people might think it was freakishly close, but, but it was Herschel. Like it would have been a lot less close, I think, if, if it hadn't been him. But um, but I was thrilled to see my people um, split the ticket. 
right? I mean, that, that's, that's when you know that people are paying attention and that people aren't just being blind about like, oh, well, this party is blah and this party is blah. We, there, it's, it's easy to be cynical. I know I am very cynical, but it's easy to just say, oh, Americans, they don't care. They just watch the video of the guy, you know, say social security cuts and he pushes the lady off the cliff in a wheelchair and they're there, that's it. You know, like, but yeah, and that's what people care about. But, but, but people are more sophisticated, I think, than we give them credit for. And I think this election really showed that in a lot of, in a lot of places. I know I felt really, um, um, but really good about <laughs> about some of these races and what people you know, the distinctions people made um, between candidates and parties um, in in ways that 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 I thought were you know were better than what I know people like me were giving them credit for <laughs> before election day. I'm curious when you're thinking about Stacey Abrams, who uh, you know kind of entered this one thinking she had a a good chance, having come so close her first matchup with Brian Kemp. Is this the end of her political career or the beginning of her TV career? That's what that is. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, is that potentially? I mean, like, I don't know how you raise money after this. I mean, there are already irregularities with the finances with this campaign. She raised a ton of money and spent a ton of money uh, on things like big parties at Dave and Buster's or like, you know, there were like, there were some irregularities there with some of the, the ways that her campaign was spending money and basically ran out of money toward the end. Um, and so, people are already feeling skittish about giving her more money to run for another election. And so I don't know how much momentum she's got for, for another one. Um, but she's a very popular person nationwide and there's no reason why she couldn't, um, you know, move on to a, a different kind of, um, you know, political career in a, in something that's not public office. Bob, what was most notable in this election to you, do you think? I think it was the number of bad candidates who won because um, we have quite a few. I mean, I was surprised at one point uh, Lauren Boebert was behind in her race and then she pulled it out. Um, there are some of those people that you say, you, they're, just, they're just crazy. Um, and anybody who was backed by the former president, um, not many of them won, but some of them did. But I'll tell you, I, I, was, I was stunned. Um, what, what stunned me? Um, uh, Ohio. You know, mm-hmm. I thought I thought uh, the Democrats had a good chance to pick that up against a guy that basically told women to stay in the kitchen and get pregnant, um, but he still won. So that's that that was surprising to me. I wasn't as surprised about the House because anybody who was backed by the former president now really has a hard road to toe because only the people that were he would support are those who were going to deny the election, say the election was rigged. And I think the American people are getting tired of hearing that, which is why, you know, that, that lady in Arizona is, people are really tired of her. <laughs> How's you mean governor-elect right. Carrie Lake? Oh, no, governor. <laughs> no, no. She, she has the evidence that they're going to one day go in there and kick out the governor, and she's going to be the governor. Oh, okay. And she might be running for Senate in 2024. So we might right. have heard the last one. Which will be interesting with her and, and Kristen on the, yeah. Kristen on the same Three-way ticket. race for that yeah. one. Um, so we got a question this time. We always get, we've gotten this question for like, when was 2016? It was so long ago. Seven years. <laughs> Pretty much every week, two weeks since then. Um, have we gotten past peak Trump then? In other words, has his total hold on on the Republican Party been broken? Or did McCarthy kind of give him a boost to them? Because at the end, he, he 
specifically kind of did a praise Jesus to Trump after he won the speakership finally and said he was, you know, he was the reason for the season. I think we're, we're past the peak um, with the Republican Party. The problem is Trump's voters don't care what party it is. They're going to support him no matter what. And that is a real problem for the Republican Party. Okay. I would say, too, you know, if you look at today, you know, if you looked at the polling right after the 2020 election of the Republicans, you know, who would you support? I think Trump was at like 70-something percent nationally. Today, it's like, I think, in the low 40s or yeah. even high 30s. So, you know, as we say, you know, a year is an eternity in politics. We have 300 lifetimes before we can get to nominate who, you know, who the Republican candidate is. So I think it depends what's the setup for 2024. If it's a repeat of 2016 and that dynamic, 100 people are running and you divide up the vote, he could win the nomination again. If it's more of a coalition, right, and you have one strong candidate or two strong candidates going against him, they could win. That could be enough votes uh, to win. The Republican primary process, too, is different from the Democratic primary system. There's a lot of states that are winner-take-all. And the Democratic system is more kind of proportional, and there's a whole bunch of other ways that a lot of these states go about it. So in California, it's winner-take-all by congressional district. If candidates wins your congressional district, you get, I think it's three delegates. So it really depends what the whole makeup of the field is, you know, before we can give the last rights. <laughs> <laughs> well, here in California, Republican Lanhee Chen, who, by the way, is a veteran panelist of Week to Week, not that we do endorsements here, but he made a run for the state controller's office, um, but he lost to Malia Cohen, 55.3 to 44.7%. Melissa, what do you make of Lanhee Chen's run? I mean, he was, he got a lot of endorsements. Um, People gave him a chance, but he still lost by big numbers. Do you think this? Do you think other Republicans will try to run in the mold of Ron Hee Chen, or will they look at him and say, "I was another failed attempt"? By you know, we need to be more conservative. We need to be something different than a Stanford professor. <laughs> Who wants a Stanford professor? <laughs> I think it'd be great running money in the state. <laughs> Outrageous. Uh, no, it's uh, it, it. It just goes to show you. I mean. At some point, you'd probably need to think about a more moderate Democrat if you really want to win statewide in California. Like if Lonnie Chen can't win, like I don't know, <laughs> you know, like who who can? And so um, because it's a top two primary, you know, you might want you might think more about backing somebody if, if Malia Cohen was a problem, then back somebody who maybe is a, a declined state um, or, um, or somebody who's not a Republican. I think that there's still such a a brand problem, for lack of a better word, in California, that um, that it's just people look, people who don't know, look and go, oh, there you go. There's <laughs> Malia Cohen's the name I recognize, right? She's been in politics quite a while, started here, Board of Supervisors, um, and, uh, and now is already holding statewide office. So I think, you know, it has been on the Board of Equalization. She's been out there. She's, um, you know, prominent in the Democratic Party, within the Democratic Party. Uh, and so I think people recognized her name and saw a D next to it, and, and here we are. So um, there may be better ways to do this <laughs> because he did seem like a really, really qualified and, and good candidate, and yet, and yet, um, the, the fact that he's a Republican might be 
might be the problem going forward. He probably could have won in Arizona and Georgia. I think no question. Because I think even in places like that, I think Democrats would have voted for him too. Well, in Arizona, a gal that I know who I worked with in the Schwarzenegger administration, Kim Yi, is the state treasurer of Arizona, and she won re-election, and she got the highest percentage of vote of any statewide candidate in Arizona this year. And she's in kind of the mold of uh, Alon Hee Chen. So you're 100% right. You know, so many other states, he would have won easily. Uh, well, actually, thinking about this election, I mean, one of the most important things is, is you know, for you, all my adult life, it's always been Ohio and Florida, the swing states, right? These are the ones. These are the ones. You go to, you go to, I was in Tampa once right before an election, a presidential election, and it was so, it's like just an insane how many ads there were and how assaulted these poor people in Florida were getting right before the presidential election. Um, but now, but that is not... That is not the case. I think Florida is pretty firmly um, Republican. Ohio, after this election especially, is probably pretty firmly um, a Republican. And so now we're seeing more the swing states moving to places like Georgia, Arizona. Um, and so the sort of the political ad money <laughs> that Ohio and Florida are going to lose out on is going to put local television just right out of business. Uh, like they're just going to be, they're counting on all those, uh, all those dollars coming in for those ads leading up to the presidential race. But they, I think that there's going to be a little less uh, this time around. And those uh, folks who are running um, all the TV stations in places like Georgia and Arizona are getting very excited how about, that about you, being a swing state. How much is that because of gerrymandering, do you think, in those two states? Um, I don't know. I mean, gerrymandering hasn't, um, well, not gerrymandering. I, I was thinking of the census. The census didn't change things as much as, as you might have thought. Um, but yeah, I mean, that could be a big part of it. But I mean, the the election for governors, these are general elections. It's not, you yeah, know. Yeah, DeSantis and Kemp both won by such huge yeah, margins. Yeah, they, they pretty much, you know, those are their states for the next four years. But if you look at the House you know, and yeah. the, the districts, the way that they have packed those districts, especially happens a lot in the South. Where you, you, the Republicans who were in charge, they make it so that these seats are safe no matter what. The Democrats do the same thing in California, although not quite to the extent, I don't think. Well, we've got our commission. We've got the independent yeah. commission. Yeah, independent commission states, um, you have a much better chance of winning if you're a Democrat than if it's a Republican state. Well, let's talk a bit before we move on to the next topic about um, some Democratic errors. Um, uh, it was interesting because literally the day I was re-watching an old episode of The West Wing where, if you know the characters, Josh Lyman, White House senior advisor, gets into a fight with and insults this de- the centrist Democratic senator who then flips and becomes a Republican. Literally that day that I had watched it, I later hear the news about Kristen Cinema, a centrist Democratic senator who flips. She didn't become a Republican. She became an, became an independent. I take it she'll be caucusing with the Democrats. Um, but you know, it does kind of make you think back on, Hmm, maybe it wasn't a good idea for those activists to scream at her and bring the camera in and, and uh, harass her when she was trying to use the restroom and stuff like that. I mean, overreaching that kind of stuff has issues and it caused Josh Lyman a lot of heartache. Okay. Well, another thing that I would say was a bit of overreaching the Democrats majority in the Senate could have been bigger, uh, uh, Republican Ron Johnson from Wisconsin was pretty widely considered to be the most vulnerable uh, Republican senator, if not the v- the most re- the most vulnerable senator at all in this entire 
election. He ended up winning fairly easily because um, there had been a broad swath of, of candidates who were running in the Democratic primary. Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren came in and said, hmm, Mandela Barnes, you should be it. Mandela Barnes might be a fine person. I don't know him. But he definitely had some positions on crime and, and stuff that obviously, again, I was talking before about if, if, you're a can, if you're a campaign person and you can't take some element that would be seen negatively by your, your uh, constituents about your opponent and make it a big thing that you don't deserve to be in the business, Ron Johnson's people are in the business. And they, they took that in and wrote it to what turned out to be an easy victory. Um, I don't know if I have a question there other than... Yes. Well, uh, uh, my, here's my thought. When I saw Mandela Barnes was running, yeah. it's like, okay, you're in Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> you're a Democrat. Um, you're gay. Um, I think Are you is. outing Mandela Barnes? No, I, I, I think that's what I've heard. But okay, even if you're making not, news, yeah. Well, 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 but uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking Tammy of, Baldwin. Tammy I'm thinking, Baldwin. I'm thinking of somebody yeah. else. But at any rate, uh, I don't. I saw some of his his comments, and I didn't think he. I mean, he was trying to attack Ron Johnson, but I think he was attacking him on the wrong things. He didn't attack him on going to Moscow for the Fourth of July and things like that that I thought would have resonated with people. But uh, you know, it, he. He, he might have done great in the state legislature in Wisconsin, but uh, that was it. Well, as you pointed out, that is the lesson. Pick someone who reflects, yeah. who reflects the, the, the views of the state and not someone who's too far out on the right or left. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, in 2023, the long-anticipated year of generational change in democratic leadership seems to have arrived. Um, Let's in some in I mean first and most notable of course sen uh, senator uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi gave up the speaker's well gave up the leadership of her caucus of course she couldn't be speaker again um, and I think she was I don't know I I would have expected her to leave Congress after that but she's staying in Congress do we know as she made said why or why would you I mean obviously you want to be in Congress but most people once they've kind of reached the pinnacle of power and she was very powerful why would she want to stay in there and basically be just a member of the caucus she's still very powerful yeah yeah and i think you know she so she'd been she'd been um working with hakeem jeffries for many years sort of bringing him along and putting him forward and not that he doesn't deserve it or hasn't earned it but i just mean like she for all Years ago, it seemed like she and he were going places, and she would, you know, make sure he had speaker speaking engagements, and was really putting him putting him forth as her successor. I mean, it was very clear who who this was going to be. Um, but you know, she so you so you literally, you know, passed the you know min, minority party gavel um, over to him. Uh, but hang around to make sure things go pretty smoothly. I mean, I think he would still um, benefit from having her there, and she still has a lot of power, knows where all the bodies are buried, uh, and you know we'll keep electing her as long as she wants to go so uh so why you know come back here and hang out <laughs> in the uk it's not an unusual thing to have a former prime minister yeah. hang around for like ted heath who was the prime minister in the 1970s i think he stayed another 20 years in parliament after he was out of office Theresa may is still a member of parliament yeah. boris johnson well i'm sure he'll go make money before too long <laughs> But he's still a member of parliament. So, I mean, it's not uh, an unusual thing over there. 
Can I just say on Speaker Pelosi, one thing that I think is an incredible accomplishment is to be the leader of your party for 20 years. People don't understand, you know, if you haven't been in it, how hard that is, not only to get the leadership, but to stay in the leadership for so long. And especially most of that time, you're the minority leader. And that is the most thankless job in politics to be the minority leader. Everybody is upset and usually they're mad at you. So to kind of ride that wave for 20 years, that's a feat that's not going to be paralleled anytime soon. Y'all should check out the documentary that her daughter did. It's, it's quite good. It is good. Diane Feinstein, let's raise that issue. Love Diane Feinstein. You know, I've been at KCBS 42 years and she was always in the news. She was always part of it. But I think it's time. I really do. Um, because I think after a while, you don't really have to be the sharpest tack in the room, but you have to be at least, um, you have to be there. And, and I, I question whether somebody who's been in there that long can still perform the way that you would want your people to perform. Now, I, I realize a lot of this is staff driven, um, but, you know, I would not be at all surprised if she decides not to run. Um, and there's already people are already lining up. You know, I heard Adam Schiff this afternoon uh, on cable. And he was he was asked the question point blank, and well, I'm really focusing on the storms and everything else. But but after that, you know, and we'll see what happens. So he's running. You know, Katie Porter's <laughs> running. Oh yeah, that um, denial is clear proof. Yes. Yeah, Barbara, yeah. Barbara Lee has mentioned <laughs> interest. Do you think she'll do it? She'll throw her head in. I don't know. I think I think Barbara is happy where she is and what she's doing. Would she have liked to have been the speaker? Of, of course. But, you know, going into the Senate, that's a whole different ballgame, and I just don't know. Well, it, it, it's hard to make the case that, you know, that Diane Feinstein's too old, but Barbara Lee's not. Let's mm-hmm. face it. Like, they're, she's, they're, they're very similar in terms of their generation, and I think you have just such a bottleneck of people. Everyone is going to run, by the way. If you're like, Katie Porter, she's the first of, like, 200 Every you're, the person making your coffee at Starbucks, they're going to run. The principal at your kid's school, they're going to run. <laughs> Everybody's been waiting for this moment, <laughs> like, and it's not even that hard because we have a top two primary. It's not even that hard. You need about four thousand dollars and about a hundred signatures. So everybody starts saving up <laughs> because <laughs> the ballot is going to be seventy-five pages long. And remember, not everybody's even running to run for the seat, right? People run for a lot of reasons. They run because maybe they want to run for Nancy Pelosi's seat later, um, or because they want to run for governor after Gavin Newsom is out of office. And so, you know, you run for the seat um, so you can collect money and get your name out there. Even Diane Feinstein ran for governor before she was elected for Senate. So, you know, you put your name out there, you don't win, but people kind of get a sense of who you are, then you run successfully. So there's a lot of reasons, including pent-up demand, um, but also people interested in, in getting themselves out there and, and being more well-known for other offices, why people are going to run. So uh, Katie Porter is the first of, I think, many, many, many who are going to be um, declaring. And it's not uncommon that in a race um, like this, a statewide race, um, that people start declaring early, especially if you're more progressive or populist. So either on the left, if you're more progressive, on the right, if you're more populist, because you're going to need those 5 and $10 donations. And so you need as much time as you can to collect them. And so it's not like you can just hold host a $100,000 a plate dinner. Uh, <laughs> not all candidates can do that. So the ones that maybe have a harder time with that um, 
declare early. And so you're going to see more people who are less in the mainstream of the party declaring quickly um, so they can have the runway to, to gather up all the small donations that they need and to travel and, and do all that, that stuff. So she's not the first. She won't be the last. And um, you're going to see more people who are on the left declare before you're going to see more folks that, whose names maybe you recognize and as, as mainstream Democrats. Well, I'm announcing tonight I'm not going to run for the U.S. <laughs> Senate next year. Um, but, you know, one thing that I think people aren't really focusing on for this, I think the primary is next March. So that's almost a year away. So if you're a Katie Porter, you can't wait for Dianne Feinstein to say what she's going to do. You've got to go. And it kind of is the same thing I was talking about earlier where kind of an AOC or a Matt Gates isn't, you know, the leadership doesn't have as much a hold on them because they have their own independent fundraising base. So does she. She raised $20 million for her house race. She has people from across the country who send 5 and $10 to her campaign. And she had to deplete most of her war chest for a very tough reelection last year. So she had to go and do it. I'm interested to see as this race shakes out there are a lot of people and there's a lot of voids in the race as we're talking about it so far. So there's all of these people are kind of the front runners so far, but there's no prominent Latino Democrat that I've heard of that is being talked about to run. Um, that's a huge amount of votes in the primary. Um, the other thing is, will there be a Republican with some kind of name? Lonnie Chan. Lonnie Chan or whoever that runs because this race could be over next March. You know, we're, we're kind of used to it's a Democrat versus a Democrat in the general election. And I think the data has kind of shown, you know, like if you don't have a Republican in the general election, Republicans kind of sit it out or don't really know what to do. It's, it's hard to predict how they will vote. Well, if you get a, re, you know, one kind of name Republican, that's going to be enough votes to get into the top two, you know, in a huge splintered Democratic field. So this could be a, a wild, well, the station general managers in Florida might be crying. The station <laughs> general managers in California are going to be very happy. Uh, Bob, you should ask for a raise from KCBS. <laughs> They're going to make a lot of money over the next year. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, my boss at CBS would always complain because <laughs> uh, <laughs> he'd see, you know, what's going on in other states. Like, we never, because, you know, it, it's Pelosi, it's Feinstein, it's Boxer for so long. You never get any <laughs> of, the, uh, of that ad money. So, yeah, they're very excited. Well, we've only got a few minutes and we want to get our, to our news quiz. I did want to quickly touch on the uh, storms we've been having. Uh, you know, we've storms, floods, backed up drains, you know, wind, George Santos. Trees. Um, <laughs> so, I want... Briefly, uh, you know, let's talk about how well we weathered the weather. Um, Bob, you've been reporting on this. How, how do you think the state has done both, you know, has our leadership done as well as they could? Did they fail? Are there things we should be doing differently? Well, I know here in San Francisco, I remember um, New Year's Eve, they got five and a, almost five and a half inches of rain. And I have pictures of people at 15th and Folsom on their surfboards in the floodwater, which is not clean. Um, but I remember their news conference uh, either the day after or the same day in which there are 25,000 storm drains in San Francisco. And I asked, uh, who was it, the uh, former city attorney who's now running PUC, 
um, Dennis Herrera, do you have enough people to clean all these drains? Because that was a problem. I don't know if in your neighborhood, all these drains are bubbling up. And in San Francisco, um, that's a real problem. And that's what caused most of the flooding. And he said they do. I don't think they do. So I think that's a long, that's, that's something that's going to have to come. Um, they're going to have to be a come to Jesus moment on that uh, in San Francisco for the infrastructure. But I've, you know, I've, I've been covering storms, you know, since I've been out on the streets since 1989. And I've never seen a storm. In my house, I live you know, in the East County. Uh, it rained for like a couple of days and rained hard. Um, so I, I know the ground loves it, the trees love it, you know, but I'm wondering how many of these other apartment buildings, like I covered in Oakland, where the tree fell over on the apartment building, went through the roof of this lady's apartment and she lost everything. She had to get out, she, it's red tagged now. So that's a big problem throughout the state. I know the president today was in Capitola. Uh, we'll see. I mean, we've, we're getting all the, the emergency aid and all that. But, you know, if you, if you lost your place and you don't have a place to live, that's a, that's a problem. And I was talking to somebody else who place was flooded out. And I said, well, do you have flood insurance? Well, no. Who thinks about getting flood insurance in San Francisco? That's going to be another big problem. I have a colleague who was telling me he lives down on the peninsula. And he said, yeah, their, their flood insurance just went up dramatically. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, thank you, folks. So good to have a nice big crowd here again. I want to thank our excellent panel today, Melissa Kane, Bob Butler, and Tim and Aya for a great conversation. Thanks, all of you. Thanks, everyone watching and listening online. Have a great weekend. (laughs) Stay safe, and we'll see you again. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.